0: hey everybody this is chris lynn welcome to the inking of immunity podcast this is our first official podcast with an actual interviewer i am chris lynn a biocultural medical anthropologist from the university of alabama and we have with us my co-hosts.
1: Hi, uh, my name's Becky and I am a lecturer at the University of Sunderland in the UK.
2: Hi there, I'm Mike Smetana. I'm a PhD student in biocultural and medical anthropology at the University of Alabama.
0: We're going to be hosting this thing on, I don't know, every couple weeks, once a month basis, talking to tattoo researchers, maybe some tattoo folks who just really know a lot about the history. We're all interested in the science of tattooing from psychological, anthropological, medical, whatever perspectives. And for our very first interview, we're really pleased to speak to someone I've been wanting to talk to directly For a long, long time, who I've been emailed back and forth about tattoo research for many years, Aaron Dieter Wolf. Aaron is a prehistoric archaeologist for the Tennessee Division of Archaeology responsible for managing prehistoric sites on state-owned land. Conducting archaeological excavations and research, including disturbances of burials, managing the collections that the state has, and doing public outreach, basically what we're doing right here. And one of the things that he does that I like a lot that you may know him for is the Archaeology Inc. Instagram account that he manages and shares a lot of information about. Or you may know him from one of a couple of books or many articles he's written on the archaeology of tattooing. He's co editor of Drawing with Great Needles and Ancient Ink, among other things. So we'd like to welcome Aaron to the podcast. Hey, Aaron.
3: Hey, guys. Thank you all for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: How is life during the lockdown quarantine shit show for you?
3: We are living the dystopian dream here in Nashville, Tennessee, man. I mean, you know, the kids are kids are in school from home. We're all working from home and nobody leaves the home. It's uh, It is what it is. You guys are probably right there with us.
0: Well, Tuscaloosa, Nashville, Sunderland. I don't know what Sunderland's like. Is that... Becky, how's Sunderland?
1: We are still in a tiered lockdown system. So we're in tier three at the minute, which means everything's shut. Except for schools, the university's shut, so we can't work there. I can't even access the office. But yeah, schools are still there, except my son, who is in isolation.
0: I do it because there's, there's nothing else to do in Tuscaloosa, so if you're not going to a football game or apparently shopping at Aldi, you, you really won't run into anyone. Um, I, I wish I were in Nashville. I think you're in a better situation, Aaron. I have Nashville envy big time. Where, where in Nashville are you?
3: Uh, we're, uh, we're east of downtown. We're in the old, the old neighborhoods of East Nashville there. We've been there since about, uh, oh, I moved to Nashville in 2001. And we moved into East Nashville shortly thereafter. So I've I've been here a minute now. It's you know, I sort of came here on a plan to be here for about three years before moving out to the West Coast. And uh, you blink, and next thing you know, you've been here for 19 or 20
0: years. Let's just start it off. I sent you a list of questions, Aaron, but really what I'm interested in is just sort of your background and maybe more broadly, what got you into archaeology and then what led you into becoming I would say one of the foremost experts on the archaeology and anthropology of tattooing in the world. I appreciate that, man. That's,
3: uh, that's nice of you to say. I sort of stumbled into that accidentally. I uh, went to grad school down at Tulane in New Orleans thinking I was going to be a Maya archaeologist, You know, along with everybody else who goes to school in archaeology, right? And came out of that program with, you know, really great education and the realization that there were not enough jobs for the number of PhD Maya archaeologists that there were going to be in the world in the next decade. And um, sort of found my way into cultural resource management archaeology. So, doing archaeology as a business here in the United States. And by virtue of that, ended up in Nashville and was sort of at the right place at the right time when a job at the State Division of Archaeology opened. And I've been here since 2007 now. My main focus is ancient Native American sites in Tennessee, both on state-owned lands, like you mentioned in the introduction, but then more broadly, disturbances to ancient Native American burials that seem to happen fairly regularly as, as new construction and new neighborhoods are built around the Nashville core. And then as part of this too, I have access to this whole body of data of artifacts and information that have been excavated in Tennessee for the last century or more, and um, sort of a mandate to do something with that, right? To try to understand it better, to share it with the public. And all of that is sort of what led me in a round and about way into the archaeology of tattooing. It's something that had been rattling around my brain since grad school talking with colleagues about you know ancient maya tattooing the idea of you know what is really tattooing and what is scarification if you do it with an obsidian blade does it count as tattooing you know these sorts of things basically grad school stuff right my first tattoos were ancient maya glyphs i think you know again most people who go to grad school for a thing seem to get a set of tattoos related to that thing and i sort of came back to that here then in tennessee starting around like 2008 or so and It all basically comes down to this realization that there's a disconnect between the historical record and the archaeological record about this. Here in the American Southeast, there's this rich historical record from literally from go, right? From the moment the first Europeans set foot on North American soil, there's this historical record that is very clear that all these different Native American groups practice tattooing. And it's not just one or two people. It's incredibly widespread in the society. And it is extremely culturally significant to them. We have then historical evidence of those traditions continuing in the face of a couple centuries of European colonialism, you know, forced acculturation, and eventually more or less being stamped out, depending on where you go and which region, by the early 20th century, at which point some of the last tattooed elders in the Great Plains began to die. So as an archaeologist, this. This bothered me, right, because we have this rich historical record that people are doing this behavior, that this behavior is significant to them, it's meaningful to them. It's being done by a lot of people over an unknown time depth, but probably not just a couple of years, right, extending back into time. So where are the artifacts? You know, archaeology, what we're supposedly doing is using the artifacts to understand life ways of the past. And so at the time I started looking at this, there had been probably fewer than a dozen identifications of tattooing artifacts in the entire eastern woodlands of the United States. And most of those don't really stand up to scrutiny, right? They're identifications made by older, mostly untattooed academics who carried a lot of biases about, you know, the the process and the traditions and how those things were or weren't done. And so You know, from an archaeological perspective, you realize that we're missing this entire aspect of ancient Native American culture. And so that's what got me started in this research. And as I was doing it, then I sort of realized that this was symptomatic of a broader global picture, right? We have historical descriptions of tattooing going back to Herodotus, going back centuries earlier than that in China. But as a rule, there are very few, or in some regions, absolutely no identifications of archaeological tattooing materials. Again, the identifications that exist have mostly been made by older untattooed scholars. But, you know, this leads us to this, this question of, you know, how do we recognize and understand and interpret archaeologically ephemeral culture? body decoration being a great example of that. You know, we might see evidence of cranial modification, for example, but then there's all of these other aspects of body decoration that are essential to, you know, how people manifest their identity, how they they identify themselves within groups, how they connect with, you know, with their lived experience, with the cosmos as a whole. And what do we find archaeologically? Maybe we find some pigments, you know, maybe we find some jewelry, some beads, And so how can we connect those things to the lived experience of the past? That's sort of the motivation that underlies most of the work that I've been doing now.
0: So if I may follow up, I really am struck by your thrice mention of tattooed archaeologists or tattooed anthropologists, right? So it sounds like you think having a tattoo gives researchers a different lens on this. Can you speak to that a little bit more?
3: You know, I think this is a, this is sort of a perennial anthropological question, right? Do you have to be a part of a group in order to study it and understand it? And, you know, certainly that applies for cultures around the world, for ancient cultures, but also for the tattoo community. You know, I think that's an important question. Do you have to be a part of the tattoo community to understand and talk about the group and the history and the traditions? And then there's a the sub-question sub of how tattooed do you have to be to be part of the tattooed community, right? So there's these gray areas. But I think for me, in looking at this historically and in the patterns of identification and discussion about ancient tattooing, you know, I think one of the big stumbling blocks has been older untattooed generations, Right, and I, I don't think it's so much that they themselves haven't experienced it because I honestly can't tell you, right? Some of these old graybeard anthropologists may well have had a couple of uh, swallow tattoos lurking underneath their starch shirts, right? We don't know that about them because they didn't wear them openly. But by and large, I think most of them weren't, and most of them were so caught up in the the paradigm and the idea of tattooing as being a quote unquote primitive or savage or you know marginalized practice as a result of their own historical societies and historical pasts in the Western world, that they weren't able to evaluate the evidence that they may have been seeing. Another thing that keys into that is that until very recently, there was no way or there was no effort to sort of do a cross-cultural comparison or analysis of the practice. And so no way to recognize, for example, that, you know, hand tapping the style was practiced in Samoa and the Pacific is more or less unique to that region and portions of Southeast Asia. And so you do have these identifications, you know, going back to the early 20th century where some Egyptologist sort of waves his hand and says, oh, well, you know, this thing, this bone thing I found set into a handle was obviously used to tattoo because that's the way they did it in Samoa, which is symptomatic of how all primitive cultures tattoo. And, you know, you read that and you're like, wow, there's a a ton of things wrong with that statement. But, you know, if you just boil it down to the technological aspect, you have no idea what you're talking about. So, you know, so that's been an important part of it is trying to build out this this knowledge base that then we can use to look back at these older identifications and, you know, question them or or in some cases validate.
2: Yeah, I think that is a very good point to make. And you've talked about indigenous tattooing and you've done a lot of research on indigenous tattooing traditions that we have evidence for in North America. So what are your thoughts on this new age kind of spiritual medicinal tattooing and the cultural appropriation or commodification of indigenous tattooing by Western bodies and this kind of shifting of attitudes around the practice?
3: It's a, it's a really interesting topic. I think it's really complicated. And, you know, anecdotally, I get much different feedback and opinions on that depending on who I'm talking to. You know, if I'm talking to an Indigenous practitioner versus if I'm talking to a professional tattooist who's a Westerner, people have very different takes on this. I think that everyone looks to the past to try to give let's say, meaning and significance to our actions and our beliefs, right? And so maybe that's maybe that's getting uh, New Age medicinal tattoos. Maybe that's uh, getting a Scythian horse deer on your shoulder, right? Or, Or a piece of black work from an indigenous tradition. At a personal level, I think I feel that as long as what people are doing doesn't hurt anyone else, and as long as there's not a confusion of personal beliefs and historical truth being the same thing then I don't have a problem with the practices. You know, on the other hand, we all really need to be aware and respectful of the wishes of indigenous groups about Western use of their tattoo patterns and methods. Both those things were critical parts of indigenous identity. And in many, many cases, were forcibly stripped away from them by Western colonialism, by forced acculturation. You know, there are groups out there and individuals who have profited from the appropriation and commodification of their own tattoo designs and their own tattooing practices. I don't know if y'all are familiar with uh, Anlyn Salvador Amores. She, in the most recent issue of the Journal of Southeast Asia Research, she wrote a really interesting article about this issue, about the identity of the Igorots people in the Philippines and the commodification and appropriation of their traditional tattoo designs. Um, anyway, I, re- I recommend the article. But you know, all that is to say some groups are totally okay with it. Some practitioners are totally okay with it. They have no issues with inking their traditional designs on Western bodies. On the other hand, there are groups and individuals who have specifically said, this is not cool. Please don't do this. You know, I think a really, a really touching example for me recently was when I was talking with a fellow from the Philippines who's working to sort of revitalize some of those traditions from the Southern Islands. He was telling me about how there's one group in particular who their belief system is that when these designs are inked on the body, it then helps the soul after death find the individual's ancestors, right? It is, your, it is your ticket to the afterlife to find your ancestors, to move on through the cosmos. And if you put those designs on Western bodies, then you're effectively sending strangers to meet the ancestors. And so their take on this is Please just don't do it. And so I think, you know, when you have a statement like that, you just really have to please just not do it. And I think that's, you know, that's the biggest thing, right, is we just need to be aware and respectful.
1: you mentioned at the beginning there about having some Mayan tattoos, some of your earliest tattoos that you did. Yeah. So I was wondering as well about why it was that you've chosen to experiment on yourself with one of Otzi's tattoos. That's not how you say his name, is it? Um, That's how I say it. (laughs) That's fine. I think that's fine.
0: I don't think yeah. his name was really Ootsie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, we could call him Steve or whatever. So you've experimented with one of his tattoos and explain a little bit about how you were able to interpret certain ancient tattoo tool use as potential tattooing instruments. Sure.
3: This research has been sort of a slippery slope into self-tattooing. You know, starting back around 2009, on you know, these, you know, these ideas of how to successfully identify an artifact as being a tattooing tool. And one of the best ways to do that is a direct historical comparison, to be able to point to a, a known style of tool that's being used historically or being used today, and then identify that same sort of tool in the archaeological record. You know, part of that's contextual. Right. This idea that you should look not just for a pointy object, but for a pointy object that's surrounded by other sets of things, pigments, tools for making pigments and mixing pigments. That gives you a better contextual argument. But ultimately, we need a direct identification. Right. Ultimately, we need to be able to pick up an artifact and based on direct physical evidence, say this was used to tattoo. And so all of this comes down to, for me anyway, to use wear analysis. Right to this idea that that as you use any tool for a specific purpose, it creates microwear. It creates distinctive microscopic patterns on the tool, and we even see this today. Right, with if you use a chef's knife exclusively to butcher meat versus exclusively to chop vegetables, it's going to end up with a different microwear signature on it. You know, people in the past have looked at bone tools, particularly. And the microware signatures, and, and be able to say, well, you know, based on the microscopic wear signatures, this bone tool was used to uh, work leather, whereas this other one was used for making basketry. But when we started this research, there hadn't yet been an effort to nail down what the microware signature of tattooing was. You know, what does it look like at a microscopic level when you push a bone tool through the human epidermis multiple times? And I was part of this. Some other people, uh, Christian Gates St. Pierre up at uh, University of Montreal is the person who actually finally nailed down the distinctive usewear signature. And both in my experiments and in, in Christian's, what we did basically was to recreate bone tools using prehistoric technologies, right? So using stone tool technologies, and then use them to tattoo pigskin. And I did some fairly limited experiments. Christian in his work did up to, I think, 60 minutes of non-stop tattooing on pig skin, you know, to really generate the maximum use wear on these things. And then looking at them under the microscope and comparing, you know, how they looked to begin with, how they looked at the end, how they look at different points throughout the process. And how does, so how does that micro wear evolve and change as a tool is used to tattoo? And Christian nailed that down. And that's fantastic. You know, now we have this use wear signature where for bone tools we can we can now look at them under the microscope and with the knowledge base, someone who's who's done this work and who understands use wear can plausibly identify ancient bone tools as being tattoo implements. But as we finished this work up, there was still this one big question, which was how do you know that dead pig skin and live human skin leave the same wear signature? They should, right? That's why you use pig skin for forensic studies, is because the structure is very similar, but. You know, dead skin and live skin are different. There's oils involved. How do we know it's the same? And so it came down finally to a like, you know, someone should probably test that. And, uh, and I couldn't in good faith ask, you know, a friend or a student or anybody to, to be that test subject if I wasn't willing to do it myself. And so, you know, the plan was what we ultimately did is we, we did just lines, simple lines on, on me and on pig skin. And then compared the usewear signatures on those tools, you know, before, during, and after and showed that, yeah, it's, it's reasonably the same. There are some small variations, but for the most part, it's the same usewear pattern. As for why it was the Utsi marks, the Iceman's marks that I got, I'm right-handed. And so my left wrist was a pretty good place to work. And uh, earlier that year, I'd been involved in a, a Nova documentary about the Iceman's tattoos, and actually that same year had then led a, uh, a research study where we went out and tried to find records of all the tattooed human mummies that had been published to date and showed that Utsi was the oldest tattooed mummy known so far. And so I sort of had this had this Utsi connection going at that point in my life. I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to do one line on my wrist, the man had two, I might as well do two. And uh, yeah, there we go. But yeah, it's, it, like I said, it's a slippery slope, man. I mean, once you peel that Band-Aid off and you're doing this sort of research and then you're like. Oh, oh cactus spines, huh? You know, someone should really look at how those things go through human skin. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh, flip flip flakes. Yeah, those someone should really get on that. So it's it's sort of in a spiral from there. There are no plans immediately to expand that. So so we'll see how it goes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, um, you inspired me a little bit. I remember when you had posted some pictures of your wrist, I was talking to a someone tattooist about the inks and how you made the inks. And I was trying to understand the principles. And so started playing with different inks and mixing different inks and started tattooing myself as well. And I, and I quickly realized, one, how much the sharpness of the needles matter, how many needles matter, the inks that I was playing with, and then what part of the body you're tattooing and how much, you know, meat, as it were, is under there. So you quickly run out of uh, dermal space that you can reach with your right hand. I'm going to ask you to speculate, maybe wildly, but maybe, maybe there's some data there. So speaking of Utsi, you did this great paper. You were the lead author with, I believe, a whole host of folks. And you guys found that Utsi is the oldest tattooed mummy in the world around 5,500 years, 6,500 years? Yeah, 5,300. So that's the oldest evidence. Is that the oldest evidence we have for tattooing in the world or just tattooed mummies? It is one
3: of the oldest tattooed mummies. Stay tuned on that. Future research is coming out and uh, our man may not hold his crown for long, but he is one of, as of the point we published the paper, he was the oldest tattooed mummy in the world.
0: Okay, so what I want you to speculate on, and, and I'll be perfectly transparent here, you know, we're all doing ongoing research. Mike and Becky and I are working on a project. This podcast is as much public engagement as Picking Your Brain so we can find out what's happening before it's published, right? And so what I'm curious about personally is how tattooing got to the Pacific. And if I'm looking at tattooing in the Pacific and some of the archeological evidence for that, it's roughly contemporary with the archeological evidence all over the world for where we see tattooing being practiced, right? More or less, there's a couple thousand years between Utsi and some of that, but that's true everywhere unless you know something the rest of us don't know. So I'm, I'm asking you, like, do you have an idea of where tattooing might have first appeared? How old really is it?
3: First, briefly, you know, the, the spread through the Pacific, I think is really, really interesting. And that's, I'm not incredibly well-versed in that stuff. My buddy Ben Rubital has done a, a lot more reading on that. But it seems like there's a really strong correspondence between perpendicularly hafted, so hand-tap tattooing, and Austronesian language families. And so at this point I think those of us who do talk about this too much generally agree that that style of tattooing probably came out of inland Southeast Asia and spread through the Pacific with the waves of Austronesian speakers. And you know then different styles then developed in situ, different methods developed in situ in these different areas. In some regions there seems to be some evidence of earlier pre-Austronesian tattooing, incision particularly, and some hand poke traditions in the Philippines as well, but anyway, I think that's, that's kind of a really interesting story, right, that you have this, this connection that sort of you can watch the spread out of inland Southeast Asia and out into the Pacific. As far as how old the thing is, you know, Otsi is the oldest direct proof, right? And there are decorated human or human-like bodies in the Ice Age art going back, what, 40,000 years? I mean, I think literally as soon as there are representations of human-like figurines, their bodies are carved or decorated, like right from go. Some of the earliest Venus figurines, I think like 44,000 years old or so.
0: The oldest one that I know of doesn't quite look like the quote Venus figurines, but it's the Tonton from Morocco, which is like, 400,000, 800,000 that supposedly had red ochre on it. You know that one?
3: I don't know that one.
0: I don't know that one. And that's, that's a key question,
3: right? Is, you know, like, so it's a figurine has ochre on it, or it's got lines carved in it. How do we read that? You know, is that, is that body paint? Is it tattooing? Is it scarification? Is it something else? In the absence of historical records, I don't know that there's a hard and fast way to know it. I think that I mean, you know, we know that body decoration is literally as old as humanity, right? It's one of those cultural behaviors that makes humans human. And, you know, there's all this fantastic new research coming out of Africa that seems to show us that body decoration is maybe even older than humans, you know, maybe practiced by our, our hominid ancestors. And ochre use particularly, right, may predate humanity in some ways. I think if body decoration is that old, I think tattooing or maybe some scarification is probably at least that old. This doesn't seem like a big stretch to me. If something is good or important when you do it on the body temporarily, then it becomes even more significant when you do it on a permanent basis. Can I prove that? No, absolutely can't prove that. If we take that as as gospel, then these traditions would have been diffused out of Africa along with the early waves of human migration and spread throughout the world from there. So, you know, they'd be like, like the ability to make fire, right? It's something that we carry deep in our ancestral memory. As far as the direct evidence goes, though, this thing seems to show up out of nowhere about 5,300 years ago. And so, you know, maybe, maybe instead it's something that's independently reinvented by societies all, along, all across the globe. So maybe instead of like fire making, maybe it's closer to ceramics, right? At different times, in different places, different societies had similar needs and so evolved the same processes to address those maybe there are tattooed mummies from the early Holocene. You know, the Chinchoro tradition, I think, is some of the oldest human mummies. And those go back to what, like 7,000, 8,000 BC. We know that there are tattooed Chinchoro mummies by 2000 BC, but are there older? And honestly, I don't think we can say there aren't. I think we can say people haven't been looking for it. And that's an avenue of research that may change things in the future. Alternately, if we embrace this idea that it all seems to, to fluoresce at this one given point, maybe this is related to, we've suggested in the past, the, the Neolithic demographic transition, right? This, this surge in human population that accompanies the arrival of agriculture and pastoralism. And so as human communities settle down and have these reliable food sources, the populations increase. And over a fairly short amount of of time, from a historical perspective, you all of a sudden have a lot more people living together on the landscape than had been at any other point in human history. And tattooing or body decoration, you know, these are social markers. So maybe these are things that help negotiate the space between individuals that help forge group identities, you know, reinforce group identities between, um, you know, group A and group B. There's a lot of speculation at this point. I, you know, I don't think we can
2: say for certain. I find it really interesting what you just mentioned about group identity. And that's, that's something that Chris and I are going to be exploring in Samoa regarding Samoan tattooing and how does that role of tattoo as a part of identity play in meaning making? And also then how does that translate to health? But I wanted to ask you, how cool is it to be able to work on these oldest known tattoos in the world? And what do you find most interesting about the earliest evidence of tattooing and tattoo instruments that have survived into today?
3: I mean it's, you know, it's immensely cool and it has been a totally unanticipated niche research thing, right? You know, when we did uh drawing with great needles, I mean, you know, when we published that I was kind of like, yeah, that's probably the last thing I have to say about that. And you know, 7-8 years later here I am looking at, you know, Indian mummies and doing other things. You know, the thing that continually surprises me is is how much more there is to learn. like I feel like I keep turning over rocks and finding new things and being like, "Oh, someone should really look at that and I, I really kind of feel like what I'm doing here is just kind of like assembling the basic evidence, right and that's sort of how I see the Instagram account. I feel like there's been a disconnect traditionally between the tattoo community and the academic community and You know, those are things that if we can, if we can bridge that information, if we can take, you know, these niche studies that were in some obscure regional journal in South America and at least identify them to other people, you know, the more eyes that we can have looking at these things, the more opinions we can have about what they might or might not mean, you know, the rising tide floats all boats. You know, we got to get the information out there. We got to get more people interested in it. We got to get the conversation going before we can really have any sort of, I think, meaningful interpretation in the future.
1: So I have to just preface this with, I don't know anything about archaeology at all. I'm an evolutionary psychologist, so I struggle to follow what these guys often talk about, but what you were saying there has made so much sense and it's so helpful. And it kind of answers part of this question already, but I was having a look through your Instagram account and something that I really like, I I really like the Vikings show. And um, I saw your posts there about how, well, actually there's not much evidence to suggest that these guys were even tattooed. So I was wondering, what's your opinions about what's made them tattoo them for the show, really?
3: No, no, I appreciate that. That is, you know, thank you for pointing out the most controversial Instagram post I have ever made. Um, that is, That was surprisingly controversial. For the listeners, anybody who may not have seen these posts, there's a strong tradition of tattooed Vikings in popular media at this point, right? I mean, if you go online, you will find so many Facebook groups devoted to traditional or historic Nordic tattooing, but it turns out that there's one single solitary piece of historical evidence for the existence of Viking tattooing. And it basically comes down to one dude from Baghdad who at one point in his life may or may not have been on the upper Volga region where he may or may not have encountered Vikings who may or may not have been tattooed. And it's far from clear, but this has been sort of accepted and taken as fact in a lot of people's narrative about you know, the, the roots of Northern European tattooing, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? A tattooed Viking mummy may come out of the ice in Scandinavia tomorrow, and I am totally willing to accept that. And there is a remarkable Black work Scandinavian tattooing tradition that exists today that you know, works hard to incorporate historical imagery and uh, you know, create this sort of identity around it. It's, you know, these amazing artists, they're doing amazing work, but, you know, this is sort of what I was saying earlier in the interview about, you know, the difference between your personal beliefs and historical fact. And you've got to be able to separate those two. In the case of this Viking thing, you know, there's a lot to dig into there, right? Like you need to interrogate, what is the identity of the quote unquote Viking? Is this multiple groups? Is it a single group? Would they have recognized other groups that we see as Viking as being Viking? You know, there's a lot of questions there. You need to interrogate the credibility of the source. The origins of that source, what the actual translations, it's not not good enough to rely on third-hand English translations in a tattoo history book, right? You need to actually look at what was said and what the terms are and, you know, how other people may have described that you know, it's a hell of a historical twist, right? That like you have on one hand, this tattooing, this essential indigenous cultural element that all around the world was oppressed and suppressed and repressed by Western colonialism. And then you have this strong tradition of tattooing now becoming a major element of how Westerners view their own Northern European heritage. I think there's, there's a fair amount of historical irony there, right? I've been struck In the social media realm, by the similarities between arguments for Viking tattooing and the recent discussions about proposed fraud in the electoral process in the United States, in both cases, you have people who believe something very strongly and in the absence of direct proof have constructed these layer cakes of supposition and indirect evidence, most of which are also vague and unsupported. To bolster what they are already, what they already believe, and what they may not be willing to change based on evidence that other people present, you know, anecdotally, there's also a very aggressive response to uh, to pointing these things out. Getting Instagram hate messages about Viking tattoos was not where I saw 2020 going, but uh, you know, hey, it's a thing,
1: right? <laughs> that sounds pretty um, accurate for 2020. To be fair, yeah.
0: <laughs> I had no idea you had gotten hate messages from that, but. As a fan of the show and just just talking to Becky and poo-pooing things like uh, Ragnar, right? Getting strung out on opium before his raid on Paris. I mean, opium anyway.
3: There's there's history and then there's history, right? And and I think that's a critical thing, right? Whether we're talking about tattooing or about, you know, horned helmets on Vikings or, you know, raiders on the steps. I mean, you could do a whole thing on the Marco Polo show on Netflix, right? But you know, let's not mistake entertainment. For history.
0: You make a good point. And, and I say this every time the show Bones comes up, right? We appreciate that it popularized anthropology because without some of these shows, we would have many fewer students and therefore potentially many fewer professionals ultimately doing the work. But we do need to dissuade the public of the, you know, that there is much of any factual basis to some of these things. There's some, but it's also, you know, it's also entertainment. It feels, it feels almost so well known within the discipline that to say it seems trite. But I forget once we step outside of our, our disciplines that, and, and this happens to you probably all the time, to me all the time, right? The idea of Vikings having horn helmets is, is a good one. Every Halloween, every occasion, there's a Viking representation. It's got horn helmets. And, and I recently read the the bullshit factor on that, too. So well, um, we can blame, we can blame Elmer, Elmer Fudd for that. Sort of connected to this, right, is something that
3: I keep having to remind myself of is that historical sources are not necessarily accurate. And that's, you know, that's another important thing, whether we're talking about history or, you know, whatever, particularly when you get back to the medieval era and before History as a concept meant a much different thing back then. And so you have these sort of venerable historical sources. You know, let's pick on Herodotus for a second, right? You know, people that that we quote as though they are fact, when what they are writing is is mostly a compilation of things that they've heard secondhand, they're stealing from other authors verbatim, you know, they're plagiarizing wildly. Some of these, some of these medieval authors, particularly even, even go so far as to say in the introduction to their volumes. You know, Basically, my readers have heard all this before, so I'm going to make it a little more sexy, right? Like they, they specifically say that they're blowing the facts out of proportion. So, you know, just because someone says in a medieval chronicle that the Celts were tattooed, you know, let's not mistake that one thing for someone actually having witnessed it in person and documented it in a meaningful way when we talk about history and i think this is true even when you talk about ethnography or anthropology or anything like this about the past you've got to look at and talk about the biases of the observer and the biases of the author and how that may impact what it is we're we're thinking
0: so you're saying that ancient historians were as subject to talking out of their ass as contemporary people on social media basically
3: they, i mean they didn't even have peer review
0: right i mean yeah. it's true Aaron, I could talk to you all day. I want to give Mike and Becky a burning questions.
1: Not me. Um, no, but I just, that was, it's been really interesting. So thank you so much. I've really enjoyed that. <laughs> Thanks
3: guys. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Thank you too, Aaron. And I think that what you do so well, especially with your Instagram account and what we're trying to do here, besides get to talk to interesting people that we want to talk to is, is trying to engage the public and present the facts and talk about it in a meaningful way. So. We really appreciate you coming on
3: awesome well thank you guys yeah and uh, you know as your research moves forward please don't hesitate to reach out
0: yeah it, it definitely won't be the last time we talk and it probably won't be the last time we ask you to do an interview next paper you drop next book that comes out or when i hit a hard spot in my writing and just want to pick your brain we may call you up for another interview right on well thanks guys y'all have a good day uh and uh stay safe out there yeah you too take care bye. You too. Thank you. bye So, thanks for listening to this first episode of the Inking of Immunity. I have been one of your co-hosts, Chris Lynn. You can find me at Chris underscore Ly. Mike, what about you? Are you on uh, the the Insta Twitters? You can find me on Instagram at Mike Smetana PhD, all one word. Becky,
1: you can find me on Twitter at Dr Becky Owens and Instagram at Dr Becky O. That's spelled B E C C I
0: and the inking of immunity podcast has its own accounts as well you can find out about the research that we do and uh keep up with the podcast by subscribing to inking of immunity wherever you subscribe to podcasts and you can find us on facebook at inking.of.immunity instagram is the exact same but in twitter we are inking underscore immunity thanks to everyone for listening Please comment, like us, don't send nasty comments. We don't have the emotional stability.